Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is David Bonagora, Jr. David is the author of Steadfast in Faith, Catholicism, and the Challenges of Secularism and Staying with the Catholic Church. He is religion editor of the University Bookman and contributing writer to The Catholic Thing and The Catholic World Report. He is an adjunct professor of classical languages at St. Joseph's Seminary and a Latin teacher at Regis High School in New York. And David, thanks for joining us today. Hello, Dick and Jeff. Thanks for having me. You have a, a, a book out that you've translated and edited, and I guess it, it it's appropriate because of your uh, love for Latin that it's about St. Jerome. Yes, it's Jerome's Tears, Letters to Friends in Mourning. It's a translation of seven out of ten total surviving letters, personal letters of Jerome, consoling friends who have lost, in different ways, different combinations, friends who have lost spouses, who have lost children, who have lost friends and relatives. And he's writing as a spiritual counselor, giving spiritual direction. They're really very beautiful letters. Jerome's letters survived. There's about 130 that we still have. They survived 1,600 years being copied and copied and recopied over and over again. Because like the letters of St. Paul and the other apostles, these letters were so prized because of their insights, their beauty, their wisdom. Jerome was extraordinarily well-educated, so he was very one of the most talented writers in Latin who have ever lived. And these letters really can move even the modern person in the 21st century in thinking about the dead, thinking about our deceased friends and loved ones, and applying Jerome's medicine to our wounds. Well, we were talking about it when you came on, right? When you hear about the history of St. Jerome, one of the things that tends to come up is that, you know, he's kind of kind of a prickly character, uh, you know, kind of a temper and everything. But when you read these letters, there really is this uh, great deal of empathy and love that that he exudes when he's trying to comfort these individuals. Definitely. As a writer... Jerome knew first and foremost how to address an audience. And he was a serious academic engaged in not just translating the Bible, but in serious disputes over the meaning of text and different things. So he could, and when he was, as was the convention of those days, when he was writing in an argumentative fashion for one point or another, he could be thunderous and scary and uh, slightly uncharitable, to put it mildly. But when he's in these letters, we see such tenderness, such love, but also a willingness to call out his friends and to invite them to a to accept the cross, as we would say. He doesn't use those terms, but to accept the cross of the suffering that they now have, having lost their friends. So he's not afraid to give out a little tough love, and we see that in some of his letters. But also at the same time, this just gentle tenderness, this genuine affection for his friends, and the desire to bring them healing through the resurrection of Christ. And, you know, you talk about it in the book, and, you know, when you really read those letters, there he, he does really put all these people in heaven, right? It's like he thinks they were all saints and they get into heaven. And you explain it in the book a little bit, because sometimes we live in a world now, right? If you go to a funeral, everybody's going to heaven and everybody's a saint um, without, you know, the, you know, really letting God be the judge of that. And, may, and you explain it in the book. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that because it really, you find it in each of the letters that you have in here. 
Right. So there's seven letters, and they're prefaced by an introduction that I wrote explaining the life of Jerome, who he is, and then also some of the theological and stylistic characteristics of these letters. And one of the things that's, I think, noteworthy is that nowhere does Jerome mention purgatory. All seven of those, who, you know, so he's writing to seven different people, and the seven deceased about whom he's writing, he classifies all of them as in heaven, one of whom I think is, resonates on the modern day on a couple different levels, who had an irregular marriage. She, uh, her first marriage broke up, and she married before her spouse had died, and she repented of that after the second spouse had died. And she had this major conversion and gave her life to penance and charity until she died at a very young age. In doing all of this, you know, so Jerome spends a couple of pages justifying the fact that why, why is she saved? Why is she among the blessed with Christ? And what is the reason? It's not that Jerome didn't believe in purgatory or that they didn't talk about purgatory then. The focus in those days, paganism was still very much a real thing. There were pagans everywhere. And Jerome, especially when he's writing to his friends who were living in Rome, they're surrounded by upscale, upper-class political pagans who still dominate the city politics to a certain degree. So Jerome is constantly extolling the resurrection, as, and early Christians as well, as an alternative to this dreary paganness that, okay, once the pagan lives and the man lives and he dies, well, that's the end of the story. Well, the Christians present a new story, and that's the eternal hope in Christ that we get to live forever with him. So the emphasis is constantly on that point, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, and all can share in that resurrection if, he, uh, if they so desire, if they live according to the way. So it's not like Jerome gives everyone a pass, like, oh yeah, they're all, you, you can sin and whatever, and you get to go to heaven. He's not saying that by any means. But there is this idea that the emphasis is on Christ and not so much on focusing on purgatory, which Augustine, Jerome's contemporary, writes about. But the more reflection on purgatory developed historically when so much more of the population was Christian. And then it was a deeper exploration to what is the meaning of sin in light of the Christian tradition, as opposed to exploring the resurrection in contrast to these pagans who don't believe in God at all. Yeah, and I mean, and it makes sense, right? I mean, because in the end, it's not like you're going to write to somebody who's who's suffering of loss of a loved one, and you're talking about purgatory and their purification, right? That, at that point, you're not really comforting them. You're you're almost you know giving them a theological lesson, and that really wasn't his intent. Right, and one of the letters actually is interesting, where uh, Pamachius loses his wife, and two of his daughters in short succession. And Jerome doesn't speak of the deceased as experiencing this sort of purgative way, this purgatory cleansing after death. He speaks of Pamachius himself experiencing that purgatory in this life. He compares him to Job and says that God is asking him to take on this trial for whatever reason, according to God's providence, and that Pamachius has to, has to gear up, ask for God's grace, and really fight through this very difficult challenge in his life precisely because this is what God has called him to. So there is a purgative way, the way of holding the cross for those who are still living, if it's not emphasized for those who are dead. Yeah, it is. When you read it, you can read and, and feel that, you know, that teaching on redemptive suffering, right? I mean, as you mentioned, comparing him to Job, and, you know, and, and I, it stands out in another letter where he, he writes a letter to Paul about the death of her daughter, uh, and he really tries to explain that question that many of us have, 
is why what happened why do the good young innocent die but the evildoers seem to prosper right and and what does Jer- jerome say he gives us the hope that god you know god has his reasons for doing whatever that he does it's he has us our hope we find hope in the fact that the deceased now with god have the better part it's the famous story with martha and mary that martha has chosen the better part to contemplate christ the deceased no longer suffer here on earth jerome writes so we should rather than you know, wonder why they've been lost we should re- rather rejoice for them because they've been given the reward who is jesus christ so as hard as that is for us to understand sometimes jerome urges us to see that perspective and when we have that perspective we can grieve more effectively and then we can also come to peace with the loss of our our loved ones well and you know you you when you go through these letters he's really writing to kind of the affluent of his time and i think you kind of touch on that you picked out seven letters were there a lot of letters to choose from that had this same theme or were these kind of the the, the consoling letters because it is interesting he writes not only to laity but to clergy but they all are kind of like in the upper echelon of society. Yes. So he, of the 130 surviving letters we have, they can be subdivided in themes. And some of them are, um, you know, when we, I should preface this by saying, when we say letters in the ancient world, we're really what we're called, those are really what we call today essays, like the way Paul's letter to the Corinthians goes on for pages and pages. Likewise, the ancient writers were writing letters to friends, and they were using not just private letters, but they were intended to be read to an entire community. Like St. Paul's letters were intended to be read to all the Corinthians while they were at Mass, at worship. So Jerome is addressing a greater audience than just the addressee on the paper. And with these letters, he does different things. So we have a number of, for instance, exegetical letters where he explains different points of Scripture. And we have others that there's something called polemical letters where he refutes the errors of heretics. One of which, uh, the famous one against Rufinus, where he speaks about the perpetual virginity of Mary and defends it to the hilt. These letters, he had, we have 10 surviving letters of consolation. So of those 10, I, seven I thought were most relevant to our time today, and those are the mm-hmm. ones that I put for this volume. So what, what kind of drew you to this project? I was interested in Jerome's uh, work at, in the pagan classics and the ancient, you know, Cicero and Virgil and Caesar and all those guys. He was known for being an extraordinary learned man, and like Augustine, to be learned in those days meant to be learned in the ancient pagan classics. And Jerome had a very complicated relationship with the pagan classics, because he realized that on the one hand, the wisdom of Scripture has surpassed them, that they no longer tell the a full story, but he's at the same time, attracted to their linguistic beauty, their literary beauty, their style of writing, that he actually finds, he says straight up in one of his other letters, that he finds the writings of the ancient pagans more attractive, stylistically speaking, than he does of the prophets of the Old Testament. He finds, he says straight up, that he finds them difficult to read. So in writing these particular letters to his friends, Jerome lived, who are some of Joe's friends? One is Heliodorus, who was a bishop. Jerome actually grew up with him. They studied together in Rome. The other recipients that are of the seven, three or four of them are from his circle of friends. He was a spiritual director and advisor to a group of women who have, were some financial means and some uh, had some you know, largesse to them in society. 
he uh, so he's addressing to them as well. But what's interesting in that, it's not like he's saying, you know, easier for a, ca- a camel to pass through an eye for a needle. One of the most dear practices of the spiritual life to Jerome is the life of asceticism and poverty. So even in these, for these people who are mourning, he's exhorting almost every single one of them to embrace a new life of poverty now that they their loved one has moved on and to give what they have and give it all to the poor. So even though Jerome is cavorting with the, you know, the upper echelons of society, nevertheless, he's extolling the virtue of dealing with the poor. And one of the recipients he, he called, who didn't have a child, he says, your child, your, you now have children. It's all the poor of Rome who are now receiving from your financially from the inheritance that, uh, that Paula offers to, you know, to the people from now being distributed through her uh, widowed husband. Yeah, I mean, you really do get the the feeling that, you know, he embraces, you know, God's mercy on, on those who are suffering. But he's also doesn't want him to sit, as you just mentioned, and kind of wallow in that pity and that and that sorrow. He's, he's trying to give them something to do so that they can draw even closer to the Lord. Right. Not only embracing your cross, but then changing your lifestyle so that you bring yourself closer, no matter where you were, how do you move closer and use this, this tragedy, this difficult time really as something that is, ends up being more beautiful and draws you and helps you grow in your faith. Right. I I think the most challenging letter for us to read is the first one that's in the volume and the letters are arranged chronologically. And it's the one you mentioned before, it's a letter to Paula on the death of her daughter, Blasilla. And I think in modern, for modern readers, we would see this, can read this and blush a little bit. That Jerome is really tough on her. In particular, he highlights one thing. He says that her grief is excessive. Now, who on earth today would tell a grieving mother who <laughs> lost her daughter <laughs> that her grieving is excessive? But Paul was a very spiritual woman with very deep faith, and he makes a distinction, and he uses the example of a number of figures in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, as a model here, that there's a distinction between mourning to a point where one wants to receive some attention to mourning at an appropriate level. And he's saying that that Paula has gone too far in her mourning, and in going too far, she has forsaken her faith in Christ. That a little mourning is good and healthy and natural, but too much mourning has deleterious effects and he is very strongly warning Paula against falling into these, temp, into that temptation of excessive mourning. And at the very end, it's, I think it's a very moving passage where he writes fictionally, puts on the letters, uh, puts on the lips of Paula's daughter, Blasilla, in, now in heaven, saying, Mother, why do you grieve for me? Here I am with Anna, the prophetess. Here I am with the Blessed Mother, they're here taking care of me. Please, you get over And she says, and you know, again, Jerome has his daughter say this, please, you get over this so you can be here with me together someday too. In the sense that if you hang on for your grief too long here, Mom, you, you're gonna, you may not make it to heaven. So like, there's lots of tough words, but so it's so consoling at the same time. The key is what we all struggle with in the spiritual life, is being willing to let go, to surrender whatever circumstance we have to the cross of Christ, to the will of Christ, and just to say, I follow you in faith, even though I don't understand. And Jerome's asking all his letters recipients to think according to that way. Well, I mean, it really shows you what love is, right? He's really is willing the good of the other while he's consoling. He he does 
care about their own their salvation as well and wants to make sure that as you mentioned they don't go they don't go overboard you know and i, and I know that there's probably nothing that exists but it would be really interesting if there were any replies to these letters in terms of you know how they responded about how comforted they felt because he does tie scripture in right he does because of how smart and how, how you know how versed he was in scripture it, it almost just flows as he does these letters and it doesn't feel like he just put them in there right it just it really is part of the letter and it, and it and it helps bring out what Christ is trying to teach each and every one of us I'm glad you brought that out because the way that Jerome uses scripture is really a central feature of all of these letters and he even says in the second or third now he's in some of these letters, he refers to earlier ones which he wrote. So it's almost like he was putting them together in a collection to be published, and he's written them earlier. But he says, oh, we have, I have a new situation, so now I have to find new ways of consoling from Scripture. So Scripture is this, has this awesome power for Jerome. And it really is, according to Jerome, it's, and really for the ancient Christians as well, it really was the center of the spiritual life, whereas nowadays we might think more of the Eucharist or the Mass or, say, perhaps the Rosary for our you know, personal devotions. For Jerome, Scripture was number one, and it was the authority. So whereas if I'll write an essay uh, and make an argument, and I'll use Scripture to support my argument, Jerome uses Scripture without an argument. And just drops it as because that's the authority. So when I write it, I say, "Oh, Scripture's complimenting my argument." Ha ha ha! Like I'm so smart, this great, brilliant writer. Yeah, right. Jerome drops the lines from Scripture. Says, this is what we need to believe. These are the, this is the Word of God Himself. We can be consoled. We can believe. We can trust in God. What He's telling us right through the words of Scripture, and He uses it so well. Old Testament, New Testament, in all sorts of different ways. He uses some bi- biblical characters. Sometimes he repeats a couple of stories, like uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the interesting story in Acts chapter 5 of, of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who sell their property. Supposedly they're going to give it to the Christian community, but then they renege, and they decide to keep half of it for themselves. And before Peter and all the assembly, when Peter calls them out, they drop dead on the spot. It's a really cool passage. Uh, he yeah. uses that twice in order to exhort us not to fall into greed, but to be willing to give away what we have to, uh, to other people. So there's, there's so much scripture in there. It's the Old Testament, New Testament, examples that we would never even think of today. And it's just woven in so beautifully because he, he lived and breathed and prayed the scriptures with every ounce of his being. He was not just the Bible translator. He lived the Bible. And I think that's one of the things you take away from the letters and really that we can take away even in today, really in any time, but specifically in today's time, is that the more we know Scripture, right, the more we can share with people, the more we can relate to them, the more we can mourn with them, whatever it may be. So, you know, we know about ignorance to Scripture is ignorance of Christ, but it, it really hamstrings us to be able to reach out and share Jesus Christ with people if we don't spend the time getting to know and love Scripture. Right. And this, this nowadays we're almost embarrassed by Scriptures as Catholics in the way in two ways. Number one is, is our lack of familiarity with them. And number two is that so often we're powerless to respond to these many objections that we get from rationalists and non-believers, the Richard Dawkins and the other pu- published atheists of the world who like to poke fun at some of the oddity or seeming oddities of Scripture. Whereas, in fact, there's, it's just a treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge of grace 
And the more we read, the more and more we pray over what we read, the more we can come into the voice of God himself. Because we can't forget that when we speak of Scripture as containing God's revelation, that's God speaking to us in all sorts of different ways, through different circumstances, whether it be the work, you know, the callings of the prophets or the, the narrative of Israel throughout its history and through all of Israel's collective foibles, how we could see our own foibles and sins within them. Uh, you think of today, the tri- celebration of the triumph of the cross, how the Israelites, they wanted, they needed Moses. They get bitten by the snakes. What are we going to do? And so Moses, the Lord tells Moses to mount a serpent on a pole. And whoever looks on the serpent will be saved, which, of course, is the foreshadowing. They didn't know it then, but the foreshadowing of looking at Christ on the cross through which we are saved. So this is one tiny example. There's countless things, particularly the Old Testament, where we tend to have more questions about and find more mysterious. Jerome uses the Old Testament so well in ways that we could see it, Scripture come to life, not just the, the words themselves, but we could see God's plan behind Scripture. The other thing, you know, when you read these letters, it, it, he does a good job of reminding us that not only do we embrace the gift of the loved ones, but we get the gift of their memory as well. It's not like they're gone and, we, and they're forgotten. It, it, he's reminding us that the glass is half full, right? We have these beautiful memories even though we would have liked to have these people with us longer, the gift of their presence here on earth still is with us. Right. And what's one of the, you know, his techniques of mourning, in addition to giving people the promise of the resurrection as refracted through the lenses of Scripture, he, just the simple human level of recalling the virtues of a person is, in Jerome's mind, the best way in which we can be comforted and the best way that we can mourn. And he says it on more than one occasion that we, the bereaved, should not focus so much on, oh, wow, we've lost this person, how sad a loss it is, but rather we should be thankful for the gift of that person, that God gave us this gift of the person for however long it was. Maybe, of course, we would have liked it to have been longer, but all of the great things that that person brought to our lives and the great person that that was who led us to Christ in different ways, that's another way in which we can find consolation in recalling the memory of the deceased. So Jerome's not telling us to forget about the past and just you know, go jump into the Bible and go jump into the resurrection. It's our memories of the past people, of the, those who have gone before us, that help us walk towards Christ and his recollections. In every letter, he's recalling the virtues of all of these different people. And did they, you know, were they sinners too? Of course. But in highlighting the, you know, the old Latin expression, de mortuis nihil nisi bonum, which we say in English more colloquially, never speak ill of the dead. Person moves on, we tend to focus more on the good things. And in doing so, we, ha- we find some consolation, but we also find the way to the Lord because goodness and charity and kindness that's the way in which we approach the Lord. And all these letters are just a, a few pages long. You know, they're not, you know, something you'd write on a, on a quick card you'd buy in the store, but they're not novels either. They, they seem just to be the right length, right? It, it, it seems like he, he stops just when he should. He doesn't go over. Right, exactly. The, the whole volume, I think, is only about 110 pages or so, including the introduction. They're short, they're sweet, and I think that, that, that makes them more impactful, as you said, is that if he doesn't go on and on, as the Lord said, he doesn't go on and on about like the hypocrites do. He points, he points the soul to where the soul needs to go and gives exactly the right amount of medicine, and 
through that, he helps to foster healing and reconciliation within the soul of each of his letters recipients. And as you've talked about, there are similarities in the letters, but he knows his audience, right? He's not like just sending off similar letters to everybody, right? It's, there's a personal touch and there, and there are differences in the letter. So he knows what he can say to each of these individuals because he knows them intimately. Yes, he knows all. Actually, there's only one person who didn't know. So that's the, the smallest letter, right, uh, letter, shortest one, which is interesting because this here's this couple who had paid a lot of money to have Jerome translate and make commentaries on the scriptures. And the reason why they paid a lot of money is because books were so rare and expensive in those days. So they wanted to purchase some volumes from Jerome, and they were all set to go. You know, and whenever Jerome met an enthusiast for scripture, he was all in. And these people were coming from Spain, and they were so excited to come meet Jerome in the Holy Land, where he lived the latter half of his long life as a monk, studying the scriptures and translating and commenting on them. And the husband dies before they set out on the journey. So Jerome, even though he never meets the man and never met his wife, he writes to his wife as a fellow Christian, as a fellow mourner and a fellow lover of the scriptures. And even in that way, he's able to find the right words to to bring peace and healing to a a bereaved wife. I highly recommend it. It is uh, it's not a long read, but it's you know it's something you can kind of marinate as you go through these letters. And and he does give such a great example. We're down to about the the last minute or so. David, where can they get this book and your other books, and how can they kind of follow what you're doing? Jerome's Tears: Letters to Friends in Mourning is available directly from the publisher. Uh, sophiapress.com and just a little plug there for not just for Sophia Press but for all Catholic apostolates you can get Jerome's Tears also at Amazon and Barnes and Noble but when you purchase directly from the publisher the publisher doesn't have to share the profits with uh, Amazon or with Barnes and Nobles and so on so these you're helping spread the good news of the Catholic faith by buying directly from the publisher but on Amazon you'll find Jerome's Tears on Barnes and Nobles you'll find Jerome's Tears and on Amazon, you also find my prior two books, Steadfast in Faith, Catholicism, The Challenges of Secularism, and Staying with the Catholic Church, which are uh, which came out two years ago. And are you on social media that they can, you can be following? Yes, I uh, have a Twitter account. It's my name, David G. Bonagora J, because it couldn't fit Junior at the end of the Twitter handle there. <laughs> uh, and then my, uh, my website, which has my uh, essays and and links to the books and things, which is my name, David G. Bonagora, B-O-N-A-G-U-R-A, Jr., J-R, dot com. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.